Soul Food. That's the title we've given to our our Sunday night teaching time. Thanks for joining us. Tonight I want to talk to you about preparing your heart for the healing of God's correction. Preparing your heart for God's healing correction. The text we've been looking at for a number of Sunday nights now is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Get a Bible. Let's study together for a little while. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, and now you have these four steps, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We we should be grateful for Paul's letter to Timothy, because Timothy, going through a hard time, persecution, a difficult assignment, pastoring, Paul offers Timothy two uh, broad aids, helps to godliness, how Timothy can build godliness into his life. We looked at them. If you go back a few weeks, the two things he talks about in, in general terms, the power of a great example and then the power of the word. The great example Paul talked about in 2 Timothy 3.10, where Paul says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So Paul says to Timothy, you've had my example. True, Jesus is ascended. You can't see Jesus physically now, but you can see his life lived out in me, Paul says. Look to my example. And we, we kind of said that every serious Christian, if they're going to build godliness into their life, has to abandon superficial influences. Our culture is loaded with them. Every Christian has to abandon the superficial, the trite, and must focus attention on an example in life that isn't necessarily the most culturally popular, but is the most fruitful for godliness. So, so the call to be shaped by good examples rather than empty, that has to be freshly applied by every follower of Jesus Christ. It, predominantly in our culture, it, it means naming specifically naming the influences that drain us of depth and spiritual life. It means paying the high price of forsaking those who would draw our hearts from the Lord. They're all over the place. It means being particular and honest in assessing television, movies, podcasts, internet, music. Entertainment is the worship of our world. So good examples have to be sought out. And the second thing Paul writes to Timothy about, the power of a good example and then the power of the word. And that's what we've been kind of focusing on. The word has great effect in our lives because it's breathed out by God himself. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. How could it help but be profitable? It's breathed out by God. And that kind of brings us to where we are now. We've been looking at these four steps of getting fruitfulness from the word of God. He outlines those those words, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. 
So teaching we looked at. Reproof, we spent two Sunday nights on. Those are the first two steps. I mean, first of all, we have to be scripturally taught. We need to know what the Bible says. Peter says we, we come to the word like, like newborn babes. He doesn't mean an infantile desire. He means it's the first natural instinct of the new birth. To crave the word. We need to see the importance of God's word. Coming to it consistently, carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully, repentantly. So that's the first tool in the process, teaching. And then secondly, as I see what God's word says, this element of reproof comes in. The more I learn from God in his word, the more I realize I don't always measure up. I wish I did. And so the Holy Spirit speaks, and I become aware of how far short in different areas I fall of God's teaching, God's standard. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. The Holy Spirit comes with reproof. It's his way of convicting to bring fresh cleansing and fresh life and fresh joy into my life. Reproof feels painful, but the pain is only temporary. It's, it's a, it's a fruit producing discomfort. The sin has to be removed before anything of God's gracious kingdom can be constructed in my heart. And lest we think this is just, you know, that's Paul. He was always kind of harping on that kind of stuff. Jesus described the very same process in his disciples. In John 15, 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Now look at these words. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he, he takes away. Okay, that's the ones that don't bear any fruit. And every branch that does bear fruit. So here's a growing disciple. How does the word work in the life of a growing disciple? Every branch that does bear fruit, he, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So, so don't miss the simple point here. Something must be cut out of the father's children if this process of fruit bearing is to be uh, growing and, and continuous. I can't think of clearer words right from the lips of our Lord about the abounding value of reproof. He doesn't use that word, but that's the process he's talking about. The cutting back of things in fruitful lives. So reproof isn't the sign of being backslidden or ungodly. Ignoring reproof, that's the sign of a backslidden cold heart. But, but receiving and heeding reproof as we're exposed to the word of God, that's the sign of the father's, Jesus says the father prunes, the father's ongoing love. What happens next? What happens after the reception of teaching, seeing what's in the word? And then that repentant process of embracing reproof, the correcting work of the Holy Spirit. What's the next step in receiving the transforming power of God's word in our hearts? That's what we're going to look at tonight. He's going to talk about correction. That's the third term that Paul uses. Point number one, the heeding of reproof must be followed by the establishing of correction. It's right there in that 16th verse of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, and then correction. Correction is the third step. The word literally means to set something upright. That's a good phrase, to put back on one's feet. So after reproof has been given, the sin identified, exposed, forsaken, Christian is ready to receive correction from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. But each each of those steps is vital, and, and you have to take them in their proper turn. It's like a prescription from a doctor. He tells you what to take, he tells you how much to take, tells you when to take it, tells you how long to take it, and he assumes you're serious enough about your own health to follow all of those instructions. This is even more important in the spiritual realm when we approach God's Word. It's not just a mystical thing left in the realm of our emotions. In fact, if all these four steps aren't taken in their proper sequence, and if any of them is left out, fruitfulness is going to diminish in my walk with Jesus. There's going to be bruised, worn-out, frustrated Christians wondering why the Bible doesn't seem to change their life. That's a huge issue. Here are just some examples of this, how this problem can develop. A, there are Christians who back away from their exposure to God's Word simply because they only felt the pain of reproof without seeing the positive goal in correction. So in other words, they were so focused on the cost of obeying the Lord, they didn't see the reward. They didn't see the fruit that was coming down the road. This happens all the time. People convince themselves that it's, it's too difficult. It's too costly. It'll, it'll cost my, my friendship in some area, popularity in some area. They didn't see how much greater the end result of listening to the Spirit would be because all they could see was the cost, the price, what they were going to lose if they followed the Lord. B, there are Christians who try to implement the correction of God's Word without ever forsaking and cutting out the sin that he exposed in reproof. They jump to correction and leave reproof out. It's pretty common in North American Christianity these days. We're just, we're just oriented by our culture to center our lives around positive aspirations, positive expectations. We're all craving to be fulfilled quickly. We don't want to be inconvenienced. And here's, here's the problem with all that. To try and just embrace the correction and the life-giving power of the word without heeding reproof, it, it just forgets, it forgets that we're, we're trying to follow a Savior and a faith that has at its entry point a cross. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See? Sometimes people will avoid God's reproof in one area of life by trying to be very spiritual in another. I, it can happen like this. I, I feel guilty about my secret dishonesty in some area of my work, 
So I decided to give more money to missions. I feel guilty about never being willing to spend time working my marriage and being with my wife. So I, I buy her a new car and send her to Europe. I don't know enough about God's word to save my soul. So I make sure my kids will be in a Christian school. So they're going to grow up and know more about Jesus than I do. It's, it's, it's like that man, the prophet Ezekiel described who thinks he's speaking from God and he's whitewashing over a rotten wall. We looked at that last Sunday night. But sooner or later, it's all going to come crashing down. So my point here is that all of these steps, they're all important. They have to be taken together and in sequence. Point number two. The bridge between the quick sting of reproof and the benefit of correction. The bridge between those two, the way you get from reproof to correction, is confession and repentance. Let me give you uh, one of the great verses of Scripture written by one of the wisest men who ever lived, and it deals with how one makes clean entry into the correcting work of the Word of God and the life of the Spirit. It's Proverbs 28.13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Notice those two important steps, confession and forsaking. Those are just two of the biblical ingredients to repentance. It isn't Repentance isn't just remorse. It's not just feeling bad. It's it's confession and it's forsaking. And I want to look quickly at those two terms. Even if you think you know them, they're really important words. Confession, well, it isn't just admitting that you've done something wrong. It's, it's not just spilling the beans. We're, we're almost buried with every celebrity on the planet writes a book about their confessions. And it can be done almost with a kind of pride. Or confession can just be viewed from a kind of a psychological therapeutic standpoint. The value is some emotional catharsis, some kind of release. Getting it out, you'll feel better. And none of these has anything to do with scriptural confession. Scriptural confession is basically um, getting God's getting God's viewpoint on my sin and agreeing with it. It means seeing my sin not merely in terms of, of human weakness or the pain it causes, but as a willful transgression against God. It always has to do with God. Psalm 51.4, you know these words from David. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So, so here's the test of proper confession. If I'm preoccupied with anything else when I confess my sin to God, maybe the pain I'm going through, the damage I've done to my reputation, the consequences of being caught, if those are the primary things on my mind, then I'm not properly aligned with the biblical concept of what confession is. Biblical confession brings sin to God 
not primarily because of the pain I've experienced, but because I've wronged God. This is what makes sin so ugly. Not just that it messes me up. It does that, but it's not just that. But it's grieved the Spirit of God. I said there were these two steps, confession and forsaking sin, the two elements of that bridge of repentance between reproof and correction. So that second part of the bridge between reproof and correction, forsaking sin. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I suppose one of the uh, one of the first things we cherish about God, even as a child, I can remember my, my parents teaching me and coming to understand in Sunday school the preciousness of being forgiven. And there's just no better news than that. Guilty people can be pardoned. However, I think it can it can lead to this mistaken notion that all God wants to do is forgive my sin. See, he, he not only wants to forgive the sin I confess, he, he wants to remove it. He, he wants to replace it with his righteousness and holiness to make my life clean and the fruit of the Spirit. So there's this responsibility forsaking. We, we have to forsake sin. I think it's a big mistake to think that somehow the Holy Spirit will forsake my sin for me. God will help. The Spirit will work along with my will as I, as I place it in his hand, commit my way to the Lord, but he will never put sin to death for me. I think Christians can sometimes get confused about this. There's a sense in which some of the old sayings and ideas that, that I grew up in were very precious. And there's another sense when they could have been slightly misleading at times. I mean, it was a great emphasis as I grew up in early Pentecostal practice that the spirit experience of God in the heart in a living way. People came to church altars. They came to prayer meetings. They knew they couldn't live the Christian life on their own steam, their own willpower. Many were poor. And they knew their only hope was to lift their eyes to the Lord, to call upon his name, to experience his power. One of the tragedies, in fact, of the contemporary worship renewal, and there are great blessings as well, but one of the weaknesses is the tendency to replace that kind of seeking God with just extended times of singing and worship. But having said all of that, one of the weaknesses of the old emphasis was, was the idea, perhaps, perhaps, that, that I could just get all the victory over sin I needed at that altar, at that prayer time, in that meeting. Of course, God did touch lives. He filled people with his spirit. He did search and cleanse their hearts. But, but you can't just get victory over sin at an altar. You have to get victory over sin during the week when you face temptation. You can resolve to forsake sin 
at that altar time. But you forsake sin every day of your life. So remember, confessing sin, forsaking sin, that's the bridge between reproof and correction. Point number three. When you've heard the Lord's reproof, confessed your sin, and forsaken it, you're not done. This is kind of the focal point now where we turn a corner in this tonight's uh, teaching. Jesus was, was, was very concerned about the reoccurrence of sin after it had been confessed and forsaken. In fact, he dealt with it pretty specifically on a number of occasions. Let me just give you one of them. You know these words, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Jesus is the speaker. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wow, Jesus talks about being thrown into hell. 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Strong words. What do we do with them? They come from Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and he's just spent considerable time throughout that sermon dealing with the kinds of sins people commit. He talked about hatred. He talked about murder. He talked about lust. He talked about adultery. He talked about unforgiveness. All of these sins, Jesus has just been talking about them. And Jesus offered forgiveness. Glorious, wonderful, free pardon for the guilty. Praise God. When they could do nothing to earn their standing before a just and holy God, Jesus comes and he offers mercy. But in these words, according to Jesus, it would be a terrible mistake to think that divine mercy and cleansing somehow automatically brought immunity to future sin and failure. And, and there's nothing more inwardly defeating than confessing and forsaking and then repeating the sin and then confessing and forsaking and then repeating the sin. It, that kind of life tends to drain hope. And it's not what Jesus desires for his followers. And that's why he deals really pretty aggressively, doesn't he? Pretty pointedly, not just with the forgiveness of sin in those words that we read, but the prevention of sin. Those are two different things. Let's look real quick as we wrap up. Look with me at Jesus' words about, about establishing permanent patterns of correction. That's what we're looking at. Teaching, reproof, the third word in Paul's list, correction. How does Jesus want to establish permanent patterns of correction in his talk about plucking out the eye and cutting off the hand? What is he getting at there? Here's what I think we learn from those words from Jesus. A, Jesus assumes these people know where and how they are falling into sin. So, so Jesus assumes that the, the disciple, the follower, who's really serious about following Jesus, he will know his or her weaknesses. So Jesus assumes the faithful follower 
doesn't just let life happen to himself. They analyze their failures. They pray about them. They deeply regret them. If the problem is the eye, the things they're looking at, that website, they know that's where the problem is. If the problem is the hand, they know that. And so Jesus is dealing with more than just the human body in these words. These people know the root, the entry point of the terrible traps that lie out there for them. They know how the downward spiritual spiral happens. Of course, we all know we're sinners generally. We all know we're sinners saved by grace. We all know we are weak. We all know God is loving. Those are all huge general concepts. But this general knowledge, according to Jesus, isn't quite enough. What, why do I sin in certain ways? What are my most troubling, repeated sins? How do I get into those situations? Where do I most frequently fail the Lord? Are some seasons worse than others for moral purity in my life? And if so, why? B, Jesus assumes, and I think this is the point, Jesus assumes these disciples will do absolutely anything to avoid repeated sin in the future. Don't rush over those words too quickly. I mean, it can be very easy to follow Jesus and just using the grace of Jesus to sort of take the edge off my feelings of guilt. But, but Jesus assumes his disciples, they'd rather lose a hand than continue in sin. And he, and he paints that picture on purpose. In, in, in Jesus' mind, only those so resolute really understand what holiness is all about in the kingdom of God. Well, Pastor Don, I mean, wow, those words sound so hard. It's almost like we earn God's grace and help by our own works. Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm not. We, we never earn God's grace. Jesus isn't talking about earning anything from God, but he is talking about the kind of attitude, the kind of heart in which God's grace manifests itself most deeply. You can cut off every limb in your body and not go to heaven. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. But at the same time, you have to balance that. The Holy Spirit won't work in a person who doesn't choose God's will and way with a serious determination. Jesus says following him always includes a kind of deletion of self-pleasing. Jesus is gracious, pardoning, loving. I can't have God's grace and my sinful indulgences at the same time. That's the issue. See something else from Jesus' words? In maintaining moral purity, a quick, decisive action is nine-tenths of victory. So Jesus clearly doesn't counsel just a gradual sort of, well, I'll just pray about it and see what God thinks approach. The quicker, the better, the more decisive, the better, the cleaner, the break, the more likely the success. Find the source, find the root. Is it a relationship with another person? 
Is it a place? Is it a location where I can indulge some kind of secret sin? Is it some form of entertainment? Don't frustrate yourself by trying to ask the Lord for help without cutting those things off. Everybody plans to be a nicer person. Everybody loves spiritual growth in some general sense. So, so Jesus wants to know, Don, do, do you want purity more than you want your right hand? Jesus doesn't assume every victory will be an easy victory. Following Christ with a purity of heart, it, it's, it's always costly. But nobody fails because there isn't provision. People will only fail because they don't desire it enough. D, this is it. In cutting off the hand, Jesus pictures you're eliminating the prospect of future sin. Band-aids come off in time, so don't take a band-aid approach. But amputated limbs don't grow back. Put repeated sins out of reach. Plan Plan each step of your day for the avoidance of sin. Think it through. You can't keep all temptation out of your life. You will fail sometimes, but stay clear of known sources of potential failure. Don't just deal with God after you've sinned. There's something even even better than just forgiveness. He is able to keep you from falling. Let let God's grace do its complete, full, deep work in your heart. Teaching, reproof, correction. Those are the three steps we've looked at so far. Let's pray. Your word is always good. It's always true. Your assessments, your judgments are always right in every way. Guide us all, Holy Spirit, as we we line ourselves up with your word to to know what it says, to, to bear joyfully and humbly and repentantly with reproof, and to establish ongoing patterns of permanent correction as your Holy Spirit deepens and reproduces the fruitfulness of your word in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you for the high potential that there is for every Christian, the power of good examples as we shun the trite and the empty, and the power of your word as it's breathed out by God into our hearts. Be with us now in our prayer time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us Sunday night. God bless you, church. Hang in there. Love one another.